This episode deals with family violence. If you find it distressing or need support, you can call 1800RESPECT on 1800 737 732. They are available 24 hours a day. The stigma, I think, changing the stigma around that it's just heightened domestic and family violence incidences are are more associated to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, which in fact we know it isn't. This is Listen, Learn, Respect, a podcast by the National Apology Foundation, coming to you from River City Studios in Mianjin, Brisbane, home of the Turrbal and Yuggera people. My name is Jessica Rudd, and I'm co-chair of the foundation. Closing the gap target number 13 is simple, but sobering. Families and households are safe. It is aiming for all forms of family violence and abuse against Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women and children to be reduced by at least 50% by 2031 as we progress towards zero. The Queensland Indigenous Family Violence Legal Service is a not-for-profit Aboriginal-controlled organisation providing free legal and wellbeing support services to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people experiencing domestic and family violence. Torres Strait Islander woman Winetta Dewis is the services CEO and she is chair of the National Peak Body for Family Violence Prevention Legal Services. She's also the Joint Council Representative for Queensland on Closing the Gap. Thank you so much for your time on Listen, Learn, Respect, Winetta. Thank you. So which islands do you have connection to in the Torres Strait and where'd you grow up? Yeah, so my family connections are from Boigu Island and also Horn Island in the Torres Straits. Uh, So... Uh, just for a bit of geographical location. So Boigu Island is located, one of the islands that are located close to PNG. And you can actually see the coastline of PNG from Boigu Island. Oh, wow. And uh, Yeah, and Horn Island is obviously where you um, transit into Thursday Island um, and also the outer islands. So that's sort of the gateway to the Torres region. Oh, amazing. Um. A lot of our guests in this series have talked to us about how their experiences have led them to their current career. What was your path uh, to becoming CEO of the Queensland Indigenous Family Violence Legal Service? Yeah, mine was a little bit different. It wasn't um, a natural progression, I must say. Um, My background was actually in construction. And so I kickstarted my um, workforce uh, career of being an admin clerk um, in a construction site. I did that for a number of years. Um, And how I progressed from construction work to legal work was because that particular organization I was with was heading towards a receivership. An opportunity came up actually with Quibbles, so Queensland Indigenous Family Violence Legal Service. Um, And so I I took on the role. It was my first sort of um, entry into a legal uh, foray and it was quite uh, uh, different coming from construction. But I started off in that role and that's how I've, I've landed here at Quibbles. Wow. And so can you tell us a little bit more about your work at Quibbles and the National Forum? Like what's the difference between the two organisations and the roles that you hold? So Quibbles is a member of the National Forum. So we're one of 16 family violence prevention legal services around Australia. And the National Forum is the peak representative for our 16 members. Um, My role here with Quibbles um, is obviously overseeing um, the, the work that we provide. So we've got eight locations um, throughout the state of Queensland um, and we've got offices in uh, Brisbane. Our head office is actually in Cairns 
Uh, we've got an office in Townsville, Mount Isa, Rockhampton, Mackay, um, Bamiga and Thursday Island. And we service an area that um, goes from the international border in the Torres Straits right down to the southeast in Brisbane, uh, to the Gulf of Queensland and Central Queensland. So we service over 90 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities um, and we provide free legal support. That's from advice right through to court advocacy and support for our clients. We also are funded to do early intervention and prevention um, and we do a lot of law reform work as well. In that pathway from working in construction to where you are now, you would have seen a huge amount of different cases, different experiences. Is there a common thread that stands out to you about people's experience with family and domestic violence in particular and and how you can help from a legal perspective? A lot of it is, and, and you'll be hearing a lot of around early intervention, so it's, it's creating more awareness um, and understanding of what domestic and family violence is. Um, in the First Nations communities that we service, it's still a uh, um, quite a, a hidden topic. You know, community, it's still seen as very much shameful. And so having these conversations where people feel comfortable in, in talking about it is something that um, we still need to address. Um, what we're seeing is there's a lot of other factors that are impacting domestic and family violence and the lack of housing, the lack of, you know, uh, economic development or employment opportunities in these communities, even access to services, especially as you go further rural and remote, there's limited services um, and supports for those who are in these types of situations. And with a number of the clients that we service, it's not that they want the partner to be locked up or put away. They just want the violence to stop. So it's about how can we change the behaviours? How can we work with communities and families to change the behaviour of, you know, the, the, the partner that's being very violent and aggressive? And how can we do that? How does early intervention work on the ground and what can be done better? There's a number of factors. Uh, you're seeing more... Um, with organisations wanting to work holistically. So that's with all of the families, including men. You're probably hearing a lot around men's behaviour programs or or getting men into the conversation to to solve this problem. But it's, it's around creating, as I mentioned, awareness. So it's about people reflecting upon and seeing that this behaviour is not normal, especially if you think about it with, with kids that are brought up in this type of a household. That's all they ever known of, of a of a relationship between a man and a woman. So they grow up taking on those behaviours and it's about us trying to show them, no, there is a different way of having a healthy relationship. It's not to say you don't have any disagreements, but it's about how, the, you know, the violence and that type of interaction is not normal or healthy. So it's creating a lot of um, uh, awareness. It's breaking those behaviours down and it's even starting from school. So we actually have um, staff that are trained as love bites facilitators. So they go into schools and basically what they're doing is educating around what is healthy and what's what is an unhealthy relationship. So you're telling me that before anybody or anything escalates to the point of requiring legal services, that what Quibbles does on the ground is it actually has the power to provide education and prevention uh, at school level so that you're changing uh certain cultural norms that have been absolutely ingrained in, in particular families um, and so that as those children grow up, they understand what healthy looks like. Yeah, that's one method. That's one tool. I mean, you have heaps of DV services and other agencies that are that are really doing targeted 
behavioral change and you know therapeutic um, programs to to change the behaviors of those perpetrators um, and so it's working actively even with men um, and then also working actively even with women but it's also so that's the early in, inter, intervention and preventions um, side of things but there's also about helping those who are actually needing support in that crisis moment you know they've got a husband or a partner that's you know not treating them nicely they're getting beaten up consistently there's no um, shelters within the community how can we as a service support them um, at that crisis point we come in around the legal side of things but uh, where we've been able to intervene is when there are orders in place. So we've got, you know, in a small community, which is quite challenging and you've got these DV orders in place um, that they've got to be, you know, 400 metres away from each other, but it's a small community where they will probably run into each other at a store. So it's about being mindful of what orders we're putting in place. So how we act and support a client is that we might get a referral through from an agency to say that they've got a, a client that needs support. They're in a DV situation. Um, and so then we would then um, do an intake and an assessment. We'll assess them on the need and what sort of level of uh, legal support that we can then um, provide to that client. And it might be putting a DVO order in place. It could be actually varying an order if they've got that in place. Generally, what we find with our clients is that they may come with a, a DV matter, but then there's generally a child protection issue or a concern. It could even be family law. So we're helping them and assisting them with multiple legal issues as well. How does the law view diverse family structures, uh, structures where there's kinship involved? And is the law understanding of that? How does it, how does it respect it? And how does that interface work between um, those sorts of family structures and uh, apprehended violence or domestic violence orders? Mm. Well, um, they do recognise different structures. I mean, have you got to realise that we're working in a Western law mm. structure as well? Um, and so it's it's not the, the understanding on the cultural practices is still quite limited. They do have some Murray courts established, but that's around the, the criminal offence. But when we're looking at victims and in, in the, the family construct, there is an understanding on how Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander families are uh, established. There's also the new legislation of the cultural recognition orders that are in place for Torres Strait Islanders. So that's recognising the traditional adoption as well. Um, but there's still, I think, uh, more understanding that's needed to to um, have um, a greater understanding on how it, the dynamics of working with a cultural family and how we can respond better um, in a cultural context to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. You said that you have a, a role, part of your role is in law reform processes. If we are to see a reduction in family violence uh, by 50% uh, by 2031, what do you think needs to change fundamentally in order to, for that to happen? We've got a national agreement around closing the gap. Um, and that's, you know, quite unique in that it's something that's been signed by whole of government um, where each state and territory are working with the Commonwealth in these socioeconomic targets, which you mentioned target 13 is around domestic and family violence and achieving those targets by 2031. With regards to domestic and family violence, that's a big, a big challenge. Underpinning the, the agreement is the four priority reform areas. 
And the first one is around a genuine partnership with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the shared decision-making. The second one is around um, enhancing and building the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community-controlled sector. Um, then the third one is transforming organisations. Um, and then the fourth one is data sovereignty. So I think with this agreement in place, we're still seeing a lack of embedding these priority reform areas and in a true intent to work towards what this agreement means. And so I think um, for us to start working towards successfully achieving these targets, we really got to take into consideration this agreement. There, there needs to be a genuine uh, intent from government to want to embed these priority reform areas and working in partnership with the community controlled sector. Um, and then it's about, okay, once we've got those embedded in, what does it look like? What do we need to do to start, you know, looking at the reductions? And it's not to say that we don't start doing that now, but what I'm saying is what we're seeing is we've got this whole of government, national agreement, we've got these priority reform areas, but we're, we're still not, there's still no genuine partnership. There's still no shared decision-making. Um, and yet we're still seeing these targets increase and domestic and family violence is one of those. By getting government on board, we can then look at how do we work together collectively, not in silos. And that's because with, with as I mentioned before, with DV, housing is, is such a critical factor that we need to address, you know, better housing, less overcrowding um, within those housings, even better um, emergency shelters for those who are needing to escape domestic and family violence. Um, and we know that housing is such a critical issue within not just the state of Queensland, but nationally as well. So yes, it, it is a challenge. I think a lot of the solutions um, are coming from community and they, they have the solutions. So again, it comes back to this genuine partnership and shared decision-making. Um, I think if we embed that first and get that right, then that goes a long way to seeing how we can work with community in addressing these socioeconomic targets. Do you find it frustrating knowing that there is a whole of government agreement, knowing that the intent is there, that the plan is there, and that people on the ground know what to do, and yet it doesn't feel like anyone has their foot on the accelerator to actually implement? There is a level of frustration because it feels like you're having to continue to to remind them, hold on, we've got this agreement, hold on, there is an accountability on your part, um, it's shared decision-making. And so it feels like we're still at that place where, I mean, this was 2020, this agreement has been signed and we're still not any further along. Don't get me wrong, there are structures in place, but it still is a very slow moving wheel. Um, and the other factor is that then we're, we're hearing from community, well, what is closing the gap? We're not seeing any change. It's not helping me. And so they're not seeing any any um, tangible change in community where this agreement's meant to be helping me. So I think that's the other frustrating side of it as well. If you could see a general behavioural change from non-Indigenous Australians when we're talking about family and domestic violence in Indigenous communities, what would you like to see? The stigma, I think, changing the stigma around that it's just, you know, the heightened domestic and family violence incidences are, are more um, associated to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, which in fact we know it isn't. Um, I think also understanding, you know, where our First Nations people have come from, you know, that colonisation and assimilation and how that has impacted in, you know, them 
to where they are today, um, that transgenerational trauma that they've had to carry as well. Um, and so I think, yeah, awareness, but an understanding that for First Nations people, it's it's very different. Um, there's still that racial aspect as well. I think um, even though we think, you know, we're a society where there is no, um, uh, you know, difference between a First Nations person and a, and a white Australian, there still is. Um, and I think that's the other thing that it would be good for non-Indigenous people to truly understand what that looks like for First Nations people. Is there a particular case that you've worked on uh, over all of your experience in this space that has stood out for you? We have so many case studies. Um, and w- what I really like um is with our team, once a month we have an all-star virtual meeting. Um, And so everybody links in via Zoom and they share a good news story. And I think that's really valuable because it's about them seeing the the impact and the effect that they're creating for these vulnerable people. And it just reinvigorates one another. Um, One story I'd like to share that that brings to mind is so it's de-identified, but I'll just say her name is Anna um, and she's a mother of a two-month-old baby. Um, and Bub's name is Brianna, I'll just say. Um, and she was born extremely premature and had significant health issues. Um, she remained in intensive care in hospital um, and she was also placed in palliative care. Now, she was also a twin. The twin had passed away. And um, the father, we'll just say his name was Colin, um, he was um, violent towards Anna as well. Um, and through the course of Brianna being in hospital, he wanted to obtain sole care of her, even though he had no understanding of what would be involved in looking after her. Um, whereas Anna had been actively involved, um, attending hospital, you know, just gaining an understanding of what will be required to look after her. Um, he then tried to go to the federal court to obtain, as I mentioned, sole custody um, and also uh, put a DVO order out against Anna. Um, and prior to that, Anna had a, a DVO order out against him because he'd been violent. So there was a pattern of that as well. Um, so he filed an application against her um, and the mother was overwhelmed. So, you know, caring for uh, a, a a baby who needs this intensive care, just even losing a child. So the the twin was lost and then having a partner who's just trying to um, take the child over, um, ongoing violence, you know, verbally violent towards the mother as well. Not to mention just recovering from birth. Yeah, exactly. She sought help from us. We opened a file um, and to urgently respond to what the father had put through to the federal circuit court. And then a separate DVO file was also opened for her. The day prior to the um, federal circuit court hearing, Brianna was discharged from hospital. The staff did not inform Colin to avoid any risk of harm to the mother. We appeared on behalf of Anna at the interim hearing and presented evidence about the child's vulnerability and Colin's, you know, lack of insight into the best interests of the child. Um, the matter still is progressing in court. However, Anna feels more supported and confident in responding to proceedings. And so it's an ongoing matter. And I know it's 
it's not one that hasn't come to a final um, conclusion, but it just really speaks to the challenges that these sufferers are having to deal with. And by having that support, that advocacy that can be there to just be that voice for them and supporting them in a system, like I said, it's a Western system, but I think for anybody, the, the legal system is just really complex and can be quite overwhelming and just supporting somebody through that process. And I believe there will be a good outcome, um, uh, you know, that uh, that uh, the mother will be able to, um, has, you know, maintain res sole responsibility of the child. Um, but like I said, it is on ongoing and will continue to assist um, Anna, the mother, through this course as well. But also I'd, I'd like to just highlight that outcomes are different for each of our clients. Um, some may be that they just want housing, safe housing for them and their children. And if we're able to get that in place for them and an and, and order in place so that the partner um, is, is not harassing them, that's a really good outcome. Some is about reunification of their children. And so it is varying and it's really about us working with the client and assessing their needs. We develop a, a case plan. So it's a goals on what they would like to achieve and, and helping them to achieve those. From your perspective, what is the current state of family safety in Australia among First Nations Australians? That's a big question in the sense of that we've got other other issues. You know, there's a lot of social determinants in the communities, like I mentioned, housing, employment, um, you know, with youth and adult incarceration and just the issues and challenges around that as well. I look at safety as human rights. So if we've got the basic human rights covered for First Nations people, but just Australians in general, I think then we're on the right path. Um, and, you know, that's, you know, just shelter, food, and, and you know, all of those things that are, covers a basic human need of somebody and access to supports that they need. If they're not accessing those things that they need, looking after themselves, then there's health concerns. Um, and then that just adds to safety within communities as well. So I think for me, it comes back to ensuring that basic human needs are covered um, for each, you know, First Nations person, that they're well looked after. It's looking at addressing the show, social determinants and that can vary in communities. Um, like for instance, I know in Yarrabah, they've developed a Yarrabah Leaders Forum where the community have come together, identified pillars, you know, that they want to deal with around youth challenges, family and domestic violence, and by identifying these pillars and coming together as a collective, they're working together in combating some of those social issues. Is it all working? Like, are there still ongoing issues? Yes, but they've come together as a community. If things were to work perfectly and we had a situation where that national agreement and local partnerships, frontline community organisations Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island run community organisations that were empowered to do their work. With all of those things working in harmony, are you hopeful that we can get to a 50% reduction or better by 2031? I'm hoping. Like I said, it's a, it's a big challenge. Another big piece of the puzzle is the First Nations Action Plan that we're waiting for that to come through. Um, it's just a draft plan at the moment. So we're waiting to see what that action plan would look like because that's obviously going to give us the direction on how we need to deal with this challenge. I think what it will help though is it would help communities 
and even government be more proactive instead of reactive. So we can deal with these issues a lot sooner. And then by doing that, help them look at reducing some of these socioeconomic targets. So, but I think by working with communities um, in that shared decision-making, we can, yeah, just get on top of these challenges or, or work to eliminate the impact on communities. Well, Winetta Dewis, I am so glad you left construction <laughs> um, and that you found a career doing what you're doing. I am in awe of the work that you do daily uh, and the impact that you have in this country uh, for good. So thank you and thank you for joining us on Listen, Learn, Respect. Thank you. If you're affected by domestic violence and need help, you can always call triple zero or call 1-800-RESPECT. That is 1-800-737-732, available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. On behalf of the National Apology Foundation, thanks for joining us. 